By now you'll have heard or seen that I'm working with a new golf app called Tangent, who are also sponsoring this show. It's the smartest AI caddy in golf and is able to recommend not only clubs to hit, but target locations based on the math behind strokes gained and your own personal shot patterns. Unlike many other shot trackers, it also takes into account and adjusts for hazards that are out there. It has sensorless tracking with an amazing automatic swing detection that you can use with your Apple Watch or your phone without any need to buy any attachments for your clubs. And my favorite part, the post-round analysis data helps you immediately see where you can improve and gives you simple breakdowns that you can dive into if you want much more detail about your stats. It then links this data to recommendations and actual practice drills that you can use to improve. Getting measurable data for both on-course and practice drills makes Tangent one of the best game improvement ecosystems that I've ever seen. So download Tangent for free on the Apple App Store or at tangent.golf and use promo code SWEET30, that's S-W-E-E-T-3-0, for 30% off. So you'll get a free trial, and if you like it and want to continue, it'll give you 30% off a subscription. So just try it out, play a few rounds with it, and I know you'll love it. So that's Tangent, T-A-N-G-E-N-T, and enter code SWEET30. Welcome back to another episode of The Sweet Spot. This is John Sherman from Practical Golf, and as always, I'm joined by... Adam from Adam Young Golf. So you and I are returning from, uh, we both had some nice journeys lately. I went to Scotland mm-hmm. to play some Lynx golf and you went on an epic cruise. So we're getting back into the sweet spot. And most people won't know this because we're not a chronological show, but I guess we're just sharing some chronology here with you all. <laughs> we took a little hiatus and we need to start recording shows again, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So getting back after an Alaskan cruise. My uh, my mindset, i got to get back into golf now, and I'm ready. I've got all my notes for our distance control podcast today. Any golf courses on the glaciers or no, just, just ice? Yeah, just ice. Yeah. <laughs> you can probably play some ice golf there. <laughs> not that I did, not that I was thinking about it, but... Uh... Well, that's on my bucket list too. What was your trip, John? Scotland, maybe we'll do a separate episode about this, or maybe we already have based on our chronology problems here. But yeah, I I had a fantastic time in Scotland. I was telling you before we hit the record button, a very emotional experience for me to get to play the old course where golf started. I just fell in love with the type of golf over there, the type of courses, the people. Yeah, I want to make it a point to get back there as much as possible. But I had high expectations and they were exceeded. So it, it was really a wonderful time. And thank you. We had some Sweet Spot listeners help me out. I got to play Royal Aberdeen. Ali's a listener. Thanks for having me on there. Got to spend some time with listeners of the show, some Scots who really helped me out. So yeah, just a great golf community over there, obviously. I think most people know that, but getting to see it in person was was incredible. I know you spent some time working in Scotland, Adam, but yeah. Yeah, pretty special place. Did you try Haggis? I did multiple times. Loved it. I was all over it. I had the full Scottish breakfast multiple times. I was sending you some pictures, but yeah, I was, I was trying to make the, I think I got a more authentic experience there. I didn't get like the tourist experience because I was with a lot of locals, thankfully. So I tried to do everything I could as a, as a good American tourist to eat like the locals do. And it it was great. I love the food too. I enjoyed it. Had a lot of smoked fish. I'm a big smoked fish fan. (laughs) So I had a lot of that. I got a little Scotland fact for you. Apparently the only place 
in the world where Diet Coke or Coke is not the number one soft drink is Scotland. Do you know what it is? No, I did have, I actually did have some Coke Zero Sugars there though, so I did find them. But what is the number one uh, soft drink there? Iron Brew? I didn't, you, did, you didn't see that? The orange drink? I mean, I was, no. I was in such a, I played golf 10 times in six days. So I was just literally like shuttling from course to course. It was a lot of effort in a short period of time. So I, I went to the castle in Edinburgh very quickly when I landed and everything else was just being whisked back and forth to golf courses. And there, I guess there were a few Diet Cokes in between. So I found them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so what are we talking about today? Probably the most important of the performance parameters. So you have directional control, you have maximum distance, and then you have distance control. So the ability to control how far that golf ball goes is a real key element to, to playing the best golf. Yeah. I mean, if we're talking in the context of approach play, which is more of a concern, we're not really worried about distance control on tee shots as much. We're trying to advance the ball as far as possible. But yeah, we want to hit more greens in regulation. We want to be closer to the hole without pin seeking. And that is a huge determinant of scoring. We've had Mark Brody on the show. He talked about how important approach play is for scoring. And yeah, distance control is quite important. It's going to be a huge predictor of your scoring ability. And if you can't control mm -hmm. your distance, if you can't hit your numbers, then you're making the game harder for yourself. You're going to be further away from the green. You're going to have harder wedge shots in. You're not going to be having as many stress-free pars or a few birdies here and there. Yeah, the game becomes harder when you cannot control distance with your irons or whatever other approach clubs you're using. Yeah, it's definitely the biggest reason I see for people missing greens, for amateurs missing greens. There's a, a flip point when you reach probably tall professional that it becomes more lateral dispersion. So at the, at the at real elite levels, left to right misses become more dominant. But, you know, if you're, God, I'd say even over a three handicap, it's probably likely that your, your predominant miss is going to be long, short. And you could even halve that and say that most of those are going to be short as well. Oh, more than we'll that, yeah. we into the reasons for that, yeah. Yeah, we've talked about that a lot. We had our... Again, just a reminder, we are an evergreen show, so you could always go back into the library, but we had an episode on approach shot strategy, which a lot of people you know, wrote me back afterwards and they're like, oh, we lowered my scores from that one. And one of the main lessons we were giving in that episode is most golfers don't either take enough club or they're not honest enough with their distances. And when you look at the stats from companies like ShotScope and Arcos, it tells the exact same story is that most golfers even as you said, even single digit handicaps all through beginner players, they are missing greens on the short side for the most part with approach play, meaning they're just not getting the ball there. They're not even getting an opportunity to get on the putting surface and hit the green in regulation. It's quite rare for golfers to airmail a green. I put this stat in my book from ShotScope. If you looked at all handicap levels, zero through 25, it was only about three to 5% of their approach shots were missing long in the green. The rest were either short or short left and right or pin high left and right. Very few golfers are air mailing greens most of the time. It's, it's a bit of a rare occurrence. That is definitely an important thing to know about distance control, I think. Yeah, many amateurs, they worry. They say, well, I don't, I don't want to go over the back. You know, there's so much danger over the back. And that is true that you know, if, if you're going to, airmail one way you can we, oh, i suppose you can't call it an airmail when it's short right but 
yeah, if you're 30 yards long or 30 yards short on most courses, you're better off being 30 yards short. However, you know, let's deal with that problem of airmailing the green when it when it comes to it. Exactly. It, and it just never does. Yeah, for, prove. For yeah, that's why I always tell people: prove to me, keep track of your shots, and prove to me that you're hitting too many shots long, and then you can make an adjustment. But at least, you know, try and give yourself the opportunity to get it on the green. So, you know, we have some thoughts on distance control. Where do you want to start? What's your kind of top level thoughts on this? Uh, well, I'll start with a quote. I don't know whether I'm butchering this, but it was, I know that when Tiger first came on the scene, his mentor was Mark O'Meara. And he said to Tiger, one of the things that he stuck out in Tiger's mind was he said, make sure that your approaches into the green are pin high. She'll never be far from a birdie chance. So I know that at their level, they're they're always worried about the left and right stuff. But just make sure that you really are, as a professional at least, in control of how far that ball goes. You're not always in control of whether you pull, pull it or flare one out to the right a little bit. But you are in control of how far the ball goes. For the most part, I'd say it's much more controllable than direction at the elite level. He actually said something like that recently. I don't remember. It was in the last six months I heard an interview with him and they were kind of talking to him about his you know, thoughts on iron play and stuff like that. And that pin high came up a lot, you know, missing pin high. And he was a master at that as, you know, I'm sure you watched him a ton growing up as did I. Always fat sides of green, pin high, lots of easy stress-free pars and par threes and par fours and just mopping up on the par fives. Just a master of distance control and strategy. I still think he's the best iron player of all time, but you know, rarely did he miss his number. And obviously we could aspire to that, but for the rest of us, that's the end goal. But we want to get closer to that as much as possible, but can't achieve it all the time, of course. Yeah. And when you hear those pros talk about distance control as well, like say there are interviews with Tiger where they'd ask him, how far is your eight iron go? And he'll say something like 173. You know, it's not, it's not, oh, around about 170. He, he says the exact number. Now, I've always thought that was a little bit ridiculous because they don't, you know, on the real course, they don't hit it like that. But if they're practicing, I've seen players, I always like to do a test on launch monitors. So whether a GC quad or even something as basic as like an S, what are they called? Swing caddies? Are they yeah, still around the swing caddies? Yeah, the swing caddies, the, the Rapsi MLM. They're just... Yeah. PRGR, there's a million of them now, but yeah, there's there's quite a few to measure these things. Yeah, so just doing tests on those to see your numbers, and you know, I've I've seen really good players have just two two yard standard deviations from their average. So you know, if they say they hit their six iron, or let's say their eight iron, one sixty, you know, I've seen them get one sixty two to one fifty eight, you know, falling within that range very very often. So that's in a standardized environment and it's worth getting those numbers. But when we're in a real life scenario, things are going to expand out. You're never going to be that good. Not even the top professionals in the world are that good. You see them missing 10 yards short all the time. They fall short in a bunker. They hit it past the pin all the time. So don't think that you have to be absolutely perfect with this as well, because you need to understand that's impossible so that we can build strategies around that as well. So the, there's two kind of goals here. There's one, getting as good as we can at distance control. And the other side of that is also playing strategies that allow for normal human vari- variation within those distances. 
Yeah, I think the better you get as a ball striker, and if we're talking about iron play, a lot of that, you know, we did our big three episode recently. A lot of that is how you're striking on the face. Your deviation of yardages is going to be tighter as you get better, but it's still going to be there. But on the course, I think we'll probably get into this. You often hear pro golfers say like, oh, I got a really good number in there. So they're often in between clubs. So let's say, you know, you have a pro golfer whose stock eight iron is they're hitting at what, 175 now, whatever that number is. You know, sometimes they have 170 or 182. So they're either like in a situation where they feel like they have to dial up or dial down. And I have some thoughts on this as it pertains to normal golfers. But, you know, when you're on the course, it's very rare that people get their perfect number. Like even when I play, I'm never getting a number where I'm like, oh, this is an absolute 100% full swing. It's always going to either be like in between the shorter club or or the longer one, and do I want to hit the shorter one harder or the longer one a little softer and take something off of it? And I have some thoughts on that, but that that is like the messy part of golf is you're going to be getting all these different yardages on the course and they bleed into different clubs. And that's sometimes hard for golfers to make the decision. And I think one of the reasons why a lot of golfers just don't get the ball in the green because they don't know the numbers or they're uncomfortable with them and they don't have the right strategies to choose something that gives them confidence and the best chance. It can get very hairy when you get on the course versus in that controlled, maybe launch monitor environment where you're just getting good numbers all the time. Well, yeah, exactly. That two yard standard deviation I talked about, and that's, you know, an elite player there. Yeah, very elite, Uh, I'm sure. (laughs) That is just hitting balls to no target, really. So then you get the average and then there'll be a consistency around that. As you said, on the course, you're not always at your average yardage. You know, I might hit an 8-iron 162, 165, something like that. I'll be on the course and it'll be 160 or 168 and I have to either dial up or dial down. Now, most amateurs are going to get around about 10 yards of difference between the clubs. I would say most, most decent amateurs. And so when you think about it, 10 yards, was that 30 feet? Well, that's a tour average miss anyway. So even if you were to wrongly club and you were to club up or club down even and and hit that yardage, if you're one club off, you're still going to be close to the flag, close enough to the flag. I would rather people obviously go on the clubbing upside of it because then that allows us some form of error which would actually the error would actually work for us then you know if you're planning on hitting it 10 yards past the pin and you're to make any type of error that ball's just going to finish closer to the flag and if you don't make an error say you hit that one in a hundred flush shot you're still just 10 yards past the pin which is a tour average shot so you can't be too disheartened with that that's a great way of thinking about it because the most likely event is you're not going to strike it too well. <laughs> like, yeah. That's just, you know, it's very rare where you're just like, oh my God, I just absolutely nuked that iron over the green. Like that's, as you said, close to one out of a hundred event, even for a really good player and everyone else. It's like, oh, I just, I struck it a little low on the face, a little high, a little toey, a little healy. I chunked it a little bit. Like all of these normal events are going to result with the golf ball flying shorter than it, it's intended. So I can't imagine. Again, depending on extreme circumstances, I know some courses have out of bounds right behind the green and you can adjust for that. But for the most part, if we're speaking generically, we need to frame this conversation in that sense where like 
I think you and I are in agreement that we'd prefer people to club up and take more and allow for that miss hit. Whereas even if you still hit it well, like you're not going to be in a disaster situation. Maybe you're just chipping from the back of the green, which most courses, ShotScope did an interesting analysis of GPS's uh, data of golf courses. Most trouble like bunkers is short of the hole. I think they found that 70% of the time, more of the trouble short of it because golf course architects know that where people missing on the short side. So there's deep bunkers there. And a lot of holes, you just have like, you know, some rough behind the green and you're chipping from back there downhill. Like it's not the end of the world. Some people make like there's shark pits back there with laser beams. I often joke about on Twitter because they're so scared of going long. But yeah, there are certain holes where like, yes, you do not want to go long. There could be out of bounds, a steep hill, but most golfers just aren't hitting it too well. That's the plain truth of it. Yeah, exactly. I I did one the other day and it was probably the first one that I've done in a year where I've I've hit it over the back of the green from Yeah, it's rare. Well, but <laughs> it really is. Yeah, just and and to be honest, there was nothing over the back of there. It was actually really pretty easy. And that was more of a misjudge of wind. I I wasn't I didn't have my head in the game. I was actually speaking on Twitter as I was playing golf and uh, <laughs> I completely misjudged the wind. I thought it was the other direction and uh, yeah, just emailed the green, but yeah, it doesn't happen that often, definitely. I mean, one one of my tactics when I'm playing is I'll look at how far the flag is. I'll go into more detail on other scenarios later, but I'll look at how far the flag is and I will add uh, a buffer to it, usually about five, seven, ten yards, depending on how well I'm striking it. And then I will say, right, well, what club could, would I hit that if I flushed it would reach that yardage? And so I know then that if, if I hit that flush shot, I'm going to be that five, seven or ten yards past. How often do we flush it? Even at, even at my level, one in a hundred shots is absolutely pure for me. Almost every shot I hit is going to have some form of distance loss to it. Maybe it's even just a few millimeters out of the toe or heel. Maybe I thin it just half a groove or something and it drops a few yards. And that just brings it closer to the flag then. That's my general tactic for, for most shots is what club, if I flush it, will reach this distance that is past the pin. And I see so many amateurs where they hit a shot and they say, oh, I pured that one. And then the ball lands like 10 feet short of the flag. And they go, oh yeah, that was a great shot. Now I look at that as, well, that was a really poor strategy. If you've nailed that and it's still finished short yeah. of the flag or even level with the flag, you that's miss, not a that's yeah. not a good strategy. Yeah, you missed you missed out on a lot of greens and regulation with all the other outcomes. Yeah, it feels damn good when you hit that flush shot and it lands next to the pin. It does, but really, if you pure it, it should be going some form past the flag, in my opinion, for the most yeah, part. I think the I guess we're talking a little bit about strategy. We have to in this, but that's why I've I've pushed a lot of people towards GPS and, and that, you know, my book, I say, pick a number between the middle and the back of the green as a target. And I think as you get more advanced, like me, I use a rangefinder and my GPS watch. So I'm absorbing multiple data points. I don't think everyone needs to do that, but yeah, I'll shoot the pin and I know the middle and the back yardage. And I'm similar to you. I'm trying to, I'm trying to figure out what gives me, I was, I just want the ball on the putting surface, right? And if that's on the back of the green with a flush shot, totally fine. But let's make sure that we have this buffer zone because if you think about your shot distribution, and as you said, if your pured shots are, are pin high or, or short of it, 
now all of those little scatter plots of your not so peered shots are way in front and now you're bringing in bunkers and miss green short whereas if you push that distribution a little bit more past the hole now all of your not so great shots are landing on the front part of the green and that's the name of the game we're trying to hit more greens in regulation and get a lot of two putt pars that's how scores plummet it's so basic, but the discipline to stick with that is hard because a lot of people's egos take over. They're like, oh, I can thread it in there on the front of the green and pure it. And I fight with that too sometimes, to be honest with you. And you have to kind of turn that voice off, that aggressive voice, and play for the numbers, uh, the percentages. Yeah. You know, I, I don't want us, the listeners to think that we're perfect either. I also suffer with, you know, that pin being on the front of we, me wanted to mash a 9 iron that lands right next to it. Yeah. It's a lure. So it, it's there in all of us, and we have to we have to understand if we take on that risk, it's not the best for us mathematically long term. Yes, we might get away with it in that one situation, but over the long term, it's not the best for us. Yeah. So, do we want to talk about like dialing it up and dialing down yardages? Do you want to get into that? Because a lot of people on Twitter are asking, like, oh, if I want to take some distance off, do I swing slower? Do I grip down on it, or do I want to hit it farther? You know, a lot of people asked about that element of okay. distance control yeah go ahead i mean you made some good points there just in yeah the intro i actually have some thoughts on this so i'm going to do a disclaimer first and again i cannot account we have so many people listening to the show at this point we're truly grateful for all of you but you all have unique situations and our goal is to give you some information and then you could reflect and do some feedback testing of your own to get a better answer than we're going to give you so here's my general disclaimer. I don't actually want a lot of golfers thinking that they need to dial up or dial down distance. Meaning, you know, if you had 168 number and that's like a little less than a seven iron, so now you're going to try and dial down yardage versus then the full swing. Or let's say 168 was a number where you're going to hit another club harder. I don't know, you know, we always talk about what do you stand to gain and what do you stand to lose in golf? I don't know if making all those adjustments rather than just taking your stock swing is better for most players. I think you need to be a little bit more of an advanced ball striker to have kind of that change up swing where you're taking something off or hitting it harder. Maybe you're going after a short iron a little bit harder to make it go farther. I don't know if I love that for a lot of golfers. I'm curious to hear your thoughts on that because I think it takes you I think you're going to struggle with some tendencies that arise. And I have other thoughts on how you can test for this if we do want to go that route. But I'm putting a big disclaimer in the beginning that I don't know if I want people to deviate from a stock swing that often. Yeah, I'd agree with that for the most part. For high handicappers, mid handicappers, even some low handicappers, just playing a stock swing is good enough and not making adjustments for it. Because as we talked about, if if you've got 10 yards between shots and you're in between those yardages then you're not going to be more than five yards away, really, which is less than tour average. So that's not bad at all. No. <laughs> now, yes, in my own game, do I have a cut-off swing? Yes. I have a kind of punchy swing. I have a stock swing, and then I have just stock with aggressive tempo, you know, aggression. And I'm good at the latter two, so the stock and the aggressive version. I'm not as good at the punchy swing. When I say I'm not as good, obviously I'm I'm okay. I'm pretty decent at it, but it's not my preferred choice. I, I rarely will pull that out, maybe once in every couple of rounds or so. 
Yeah, but I'm comfortable switching between aggressive and stock with myself. But I've practiced those a lot. I've done lots and lots of testing to see that the outcomes are very similar. It's not a problem for me. You can, as an amateur, test these things as well and see what your lateral dispersion is like when you change these things up. If on a range scenario you have similar dispersions, then there may be a call to say, okay, let's start bringing that skill out on the golf course. It might slightly help you. But again, you're not going to be too, going too wrong just by having your stock yardage and being five yards away from it. You'll be shocked that I'm very similar to you too. But yeah, I'm better at like, we'll get into that, like some thoughts on taking off and adding, but I'm better at going at it harder than I am taking something off. And I've run the test myself. It's interesting. And Lou Stagner did a study, also a frequent guest on the show that I'll talk about. But yeah, I think it requires like, if you want to get outside that headspace of of just going stock and deferring to a little bit more club. My goal for most golfers is to have a very simple approach on the course. I want you to feel like you're not choosing between seven different things before you stand over the ball. So meaning I don't want you choosing between a fader, a draw, a lower high trajectory, taking something off or adding it on. Like the more options you add to most golfers, the more indecision and mechanical someone's going to get over the ball. Like, I want you to step up, be like, that's my number, my club, go hit. I think you're going to have much better execution playing golf like that rather than being like, oh, am I taking something off here? Am I adding it on? It just makes the game harder for a lot of people. Not saying that you couldn't do that. I think better players can do that. But yeah, I want you to start thinking like stock shot, test, gather data, if you're hitting more greens and you're adding clubs and you're not air milling greens, great. Then maybe we could start talking about these other methods, which we'll get into, which is taking some, maybe a change up pitch where you're gripping down on the club or swinging slower or going at a, another iron harder to add some distance. I'd only want you to do that until you prove to yourself that, okay, I'm doing well with this first basic strategy. That's kind of where I stand on the topic as, as generic as I can make it. Yeah. As anecdotal as this is, I see more poor shots, more of those real disaster shots from amateurs when they say beforehand, oh, I'm trying to take something off this. So I'm trying, I'm going to try and bust this one there. And then they hit the shot and they're like, ah, why didn't they just play my normal? Exactly. I'll give you a perfect example. So it's the beginning of the golf season here. I haven't played too many rounds. And over the last few years, I've developed like a change up pitch. I keep saying change up pitch where I take something off of my driver when I need it. So I go at like an 80% swing, put the ball maybe a little bit towards the middle of my stance, and I can kind of hit this like punchy draw. I don't feel like I'm doing anything too different, but I've worked on this shot every year and I feel comfortable with it in certain wind conditions and course conditions. So <laughs> it's early in the season. I haven't hit this shot once this year and I did it at my course the other day. What did I do? I hit a screaming pull hook that went literally nowhere. And had to save bogey on the hole. But it was a perfect example of I went outside my stock driver swing. I hadn't worked on this shot. So I was doing something different. First time I played it all year. And it was an absolute disaster. The delta between what my normal shot would have been in this was like over 100 yards. And directionally, it was bad. So to your point, when you start going outside of what you're comfortable with, the variance in your outcomes increases dramatically for most players because you're just not used to it and you're doing something different. So that's why, again, big warning label on trying to take something off or add something if you're not doing that all the time. We are going to take a quick break 
and we will be right back. We have an exclusive offer on one of my favorite golf shoe brands, True Linkswear. They just released their new Lux G shoes, which is their first big release of 2024, and it is packed with a ton of features. The Lux G is available in both men's and women's models, and it combines tour level performance with a new fit and feel. You'll get the comfort that True Linkswear is known for with their Wonderlux midsole for a supportive yet comfortable ride. The Lux G is also fully waterproof with a two-year warranty, and they have designed it with their padded heel lock system to ensure stability throughout the entire golf swing. But they didn't stop there. True Linkswear always pays attention to the small details. There's padding on the back to prevent rubbing against your foot, an antimicrobial comfort insole, and the Lux G's come in multiple colors. Sweet Spot listeners can get 15% off the Lux G shoes by visiting truelinkswear.com and using promo code SWEETSPOT. Once again, that's truelinkswear.com and use promo code SWEETSPOT, that's one word, to get 15% off their new Lux G shoes. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and for free. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com forward slash sweet spot. LinkedIn is not just a job board. It helps you hire professionals you cannot find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to a new perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. Also on LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. Just recently, they even launched a new feature that helps you write your job description, making the process even easier and quicker. And they know that small business owners like myself and Adam are wearing so many hats and might not have the resources to hire, so it's a great place to get help. Now here's what you can do. Post your job for free at linkedin.com forward slash sweet spot. That's linkedin.com forward slash sweet spot to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Yeah, I mean, from a technical point of view, anytime you change the tempo or the aggression or anything like that, you're inputting different forces and torques into the club, and that's going to result in different geometry, you know, different low point positions, different face positions. You know, for me, I know my tendencies. So it tends to be that the more aggressive I am, the less left I will miss, or the more right I will miss, and vice versa. Uh, I hate missing left, so that's why I also don't like the soft approaches, because when I'm trying to just baby one in there i'm much more likely to miss left so i I don't like that i'd rather take the club up and actual club down rather and and actually trying to hammer it there that is just my preferred way of of going at it I, i tend to like to swing kind of aggressive at things it fits my patterns that might be different for you you know you find a lot of slicers they hit their worst right balls when they try to hit it hard everybody has different patterns so don't don't everybody listen to that and say that falls that creates the same pattern for every single player but there's a tendency there the harder you hit it the more right you miss and and vice versa for right-handers 
Yeah, just know your patterns. And the easiest way to know your pattern is, patterns is to have fewer of them. So don't yeah. try <laughs> as many shots if you're not ready for them yet. Very good point. So now that we've scared the hell out of everybody, do we want to talk about some methods of start with taking distances off? <laughs> Yeah, you go, because you, you started with a few ideas, Yeah, so, right? yeah, I mean, there aren't many methods. Like, everyone kind of knows them inherently. But, yeah, again, the warning label is, like, the best thing to do is test these things. So I've tested them a ton with my launch monitor saying, like, okay, if my stock 8 iron is 165 and I want to hit this 8 iron 155, what do I need to do to hit that number? So I paid attention when I take something off, what happens? For me, I've noticed that my path definitely gets more into out. I'm starting to hit more sweeping hooks when I take something off and I slow my swing speed down. I don't know why, but that's my tendency. You know, I realize when I want to do that change up pitch with my irons, I just tend to hook the ball more. So then I'd be like, okay, I need to flash the face open to counteract that. So that that's something I've noticed when I take something off of it. My curvature starts to get a little more wild vice versa if i try and hit my eight iron like try and crush it i've actually found like you better results and lou stagner did it this was a few years ago he did this i thought it was a really cool experiment and i tried it out he told everyone with the launch monitor like sky tracker better hit these series of shots where we were alternating between trying to add distance and take away distance with iron shots. He went through all the results and I was a huge outlier. He's like, you were one of the few people who got more accurate when they went after it harder with their irons. Almost everyone did better when they took something off of it versus their stock swing. You just don't know until you try. How do you reduce distance? The question on Twitter is like, do you grip up on it or try and slow your swing down? I think it depends too. Like for me, I'll just grip down on it. Like if I'm on the course and I do want to take something off of it and like not spin it as much and hit it into the wind, like let's say I have a gap wedge that I want to hit 115 yards or 120 yards, I'll just grip down on it. That that works for me. I've noticed in my launch monitor that takes some swing speed off. And sometimes I can consciously swing at 90%. I kind of do like what I would do with my partial wedges. Again, I don't do this that often though. And I have practiced it enough where like I am comfortable hitting those shots more so in windy conditions. I do play a lot in the wind, so I've needed that shot. So yeah, I think people need to experiment with, you know, whether it's gripping down on it, feeling like they're swinging 80 or 90% of their full swing, and then start paying attention to what happens to our big three and ball flight. How's your strike? How's the starting direction of the shot? Are you pulling them more? Are you pushing them more? Are you noticing more curvature in your shots like I do? And if the answers aren't so great, (laughs) then you have like some evidence to be like, okay, I'm not very good at taking distance off my irons. Like this isn't working for me. So it's a bit of an experiment and trial you have to run. I actually go with the opposite approach 95% of the time. I don't try to take distance off an iron. I try to add it to another iron. Yeah, which is, yes, that's the other option, right? Yeah, if I'm stuck between a nine and a nine and a wedge, I will often take the wedge. And, uh, you know, the first port of call is, right, I'm going to try and hit it harder, more aggressively, because I like doing that anyway. And if I still feel like it won't get there, I'll start to just close the face a little bit and then close my stance. So almost playing a mini pull hook 
onto the target. Now I'm not talking about a huge roping 20 yard curve at my level. I'm talking about adding an extra five, maybe 10 yards of curvature to it. So I'll be aiming, you know, another 10 yards to the right of the flag and just closing the face down a little bit. And that just, you know, turns that wedge into closer to a nine iron or, or nine and a half iron. So uh, yeah, that's, that's the way that I always think about it. It's very rare, probably 5% of the time that I will be taking yardage off a club by you know swinging slowly. If I do that, it'll be kind of just curtailing my follow through, kind of like a Tommy Fleetwood, just feel as if I slam on the brakes or impact and the follow through is, is uh, shorter. And that tends to just cut a little bit of speed off, maybe even just opening the face a little bit and play more of fady or less of a draw shot there. That will tend to reduce or increase the spin loft and reduce the ball speed. So those are my, my methods of doing it. Just more of a pull hockey shot for a longer one or more of a fady shot for a for a shorter one yeah i think it can be situational so what you described is interesting so just speaking anecdotally maybe people can glean something from this hopefully i only go for the change up pitch where i take something off when i'm hitting into the wind so i do play a lot into the wind and i noticed if i have let's take that 120 yard or 115 yard example I'm a de-lofter. I could hit my sand wedge 120 if I want to and just swing harder. I would do that in more benign conditions. So I guess I'm similar to you that if I had an in-between yardage and I want to go at it harder and there's no wind, I'll go at it harder. The only difference is, is that if I'm into the wind and I try and go at it harder, now I'm going to spin it more and hit it higher. Two things I don't want to happen into the wind. If I want to take something off, yeah, I might do what you described that, Tommy Fleet. For me, it's I flash the face open a little bit more and curtail the follow through, like you said, like that Tommy Fleetwood-esque shot where I've learned to hit that over the years because I do need that shot playing in the wind and I feel like as though I'm a good enough ball striker to do that. So I've learned to kind of keep the ball more of a dead, not as much spin, kind of like a boring flight and me leaving the face open prevents that massive hook into the wind. So... Yeah, that's kind of become like my decision rubric is if I'm in between yardages, no wind, I'll probably swing harder at it. But if I'm into the wind, then I'll try and hit that change up pitch. Not too often that I do this, but yeah, again, if you're going to go past like our basic generic advice, like those are the two options you need to decide between. And there are different answers for everyone. So what we described could be the opposite for you. And a lot of golfers don't pay attention to this feedback. So if you do have access to launch monitor, you can run some experiments. I have and see what your dispersion circle looks like taking some distance off of your irons. So intentionally trying to hit that 150 yard shot. Let's say that's your stock yardage with a seven iron or eight iron. Try and hit it 140 and see what happens. Are you missing a lot to the short and left? Are you leaving the face open to the right? Are you hooking them? Are you slicing them? Does your strike start to suffer? There's usually some clues that emerge when you start to do that. That's what I found. And then I start to try and make decisions based on the tighter dispersion. And that's a lot of what golf is. It's a fact-finding mission and paying attention to what you're seeing and going with the best chance. It's not always going to work out. I do a lot of testing on these things with, uh, you know, I'll stick up a player at a certain yardage and I'll say, let's test three different ways of getting there let's hit a, a hard wedge there let's hit a stock nine sorry vi vice versa and then another club maybe even shaping shots in there differently as well and we see out of those tests which ones produce the tightest standard deviation because usually that's going to be the best shot 
Now we'll take into account all the variables and or at least all the, the human variables that player is inputting. Doesn't take into account obviously wind and, and things that when they get in the golf course are needed to factor in as well. But uh, yeah, running these kind of tests and seeing which ones perform best for you. There's a lot of learning involved in this. The, at the very least, you're getting some good practice in. But at the very most, you're, you're learning exactly what you need to get there. You know, I have different yardages or different ways of playing different yardages and I know what works best for me. Yeah, I think most amateurs could learn from that a lot. What are your thoughts on gripping down on the club. A lot of people ask that. I do it sometimes. I've noticed that, yeah, if I grip down on my gap wedge, it'll take three or four yards off, something like that. And then if I want to take some more off, then I need to consciously like do a 90% or 80% swing. It changes it for me. Yeah. It it changes the feel of the weight of the club. Yeah. Some people don't like that. Yeah. Because I know all clubs are different lengths. And so therefore they should feel different weights, but manufacturers make them with a certain swing weight so that they all feel very similar throughout the bag. There's just something about gripping down on it, whether <laughs> it changes the grip thickness or the, the weight. I can hit shots like it, but it's definitely not going to produce my tighter dispersions. I'm much better off doing the other way around of keeping my grip the same and hammering a pull hook up there instead. Yeah. I guess it's different for everyone because some people ask that with driver. I'm like, I don't really love gripping down on my driver that much because I, I did that experiment for years where I had the shorter driver shaft and everyone's like, well, why don't you just grip down on it? I'm like, I'm not comfortable holding the driver shaft two inches lower. Like it just feels strange to me. I could do it, you know, sometimes, but I don't want that to be my stock swing. And there's certain golfers who do that. I think Tommy Fleetwood is actually one of them. And I'm thinking of Brooke Henderson on the LPGA tour. They like choke down on their drivers all the, yeah, yeah, he, yes. So, and some golfers are totally comfortable with that. So again, getting back to our original point is like test and see what works and gives you the desirable outcome for you. Because again, with my irons, I don't have any problem. Like if I'm hitting into the wind with like a five, six, seven iron, I'm okay gripping down on it a little bit. doesn't feel weird to me, but not so much in my driver. So it just depends, like a lot of things in golf. Yeah, I have to grip down on my driver in my simulator because the ceiling's so low. <laughs> I actually have to do it by ceiling. about four to six inches. Yeah, oh, that's so, a lot. Yeah, it is. And it's just something that I'm like, oh, well, I want to hit my driver indoors. So it is a very big shift then when I go from indoors to outdoors and I'm gripping normal length I, the, the shaft feels completely different it feels like a licorice stick when, when I go <laughs> back to normal and so yeah that hasn't been the nicest thing to have to deal with but I, I like practicing indoors as well so I just deal with it gripping down for me I don't like doing it personally but again I'm not against that for pupils if, if we test it and they produce great results with it then we go with it I can even recall one pupil who hit it so well gripping down an inch on it that we just said that let's yeah, keep th it let there. This be yeah. your stock shot. Yeah, yeah, that's totally fine. I also want to I want to throw one thing in before I forget. Uh, I'll just it, it's somewhat related, but on a different topic. When we talk about distance control, mainly with irons, or even if it's like fairway woods hybrids, go back to our episodes. So we've had a few episodes with Woody Lashin on club fitting. And you can go back to the iron episode. I want people to listen to that one because you might have a gapping problem that you don't know about. And that is one of the benefits of being properly fit if you have access to a good footer, of course, and you have the budget for it. But sometimes people have massive gaps between their irons that they don't know about. 
And when you do the testing and you can start benchmarking things, there might be an easier answer with an equipment change, maybe adjusting your lofts on your current irons or perhaps going to a different set. You might be fighting against something that could be solved through an equipment change and that doesn't require any type of like technical or swing intervention. And that is possible sometimes. So I'm just going to throw that in there as a reminder to people and, and maybe if they want to go check out that episode with Woody because you know, gapping with your irons and approach clubs is critically important. And a lot of golfers don't have it right and they have no idea. So there's just a little tidbit for you. So I'm considering whether we go on to the next topic of, you know, why we have bigger distance dispersions or do you have more ways of no, changing I mean, up the I, distance? I don't think there's anything magical because ultimately you are changing swing speed, right? That, that is all your, by taking something off or adding something on, you are or changing spin or spin. Yeah, yeah, I shouldn't say that. I'm, I'm thinking more of it in terms of like when you want to take something off of it for the most part on distance control, like what's going to have the most influence. It's probably swinging at a slower swing speed. So consciously feeling like you're doing a 70, 80, 90% swing, gripping down on it maybe, or you're going at it harder. You're adding swing speed. There isn't that much else to it. I think people just need to explore and absorb the feedback and again, the disclaimer is, <laughs> I don't think most of you need to worry about this that much. I think it's a good thought exercise to go through. So yeah, we can, I don't really have anything else magical to, to I don't have any major secrets there. It's, it's, it's not that complicated in my opinion. Well, I'll add a few things what not to do. Uh, I have heard this not just once, but several times of players who say, oh, I tried to take some off that by intentionally towing it or intentionally healing oh, it or something yeah. like that i did work with a guy don parsons very good golf instructor he was really good with his driver he would have this neck shot so he would hit a drive that he would uh -huh. intentionally hit out the heel and it was his fairway finder so yeah, no, like nothing little, really to do with distance control but there are players thing. i mean he was a yeah he was a real elite player you know he could have made it top pro he played with like freddie couples and all those guys so he was a real good player but even at that level I, i'm like that's interesting yeah i mean <laughs> but, maybe maybe with wedges i know some good wedge players around the greens will intentionally tow it to take something off of it I've never thought about that on full swings, full swings, trying to miss the the sweet spot. But uh, yeah, I'm not, <laughs> that's, I've seen that's it. An interesting I've seen strategy. it. I've seen a, usually, it's the cigar smoking twenty three handicapper who's been playing <laughs> all his life, and he's like, "Yeah, just try to take a little bit off that by hitting it off the shiny, shiny part of the toe." And I'm like, "You're really not good enough to do that for number yeah. one." But that would be something I would I would advise against that as well. Yeah, yeah. So always, uh, you know, try and hit the hit close to the sweet spot anyway. So which can lead us on to, you know, what causes good and bad distance control? What are the factors? Why? Why can you see an amateur practicing on a range uh, or, you know, they, you see their trackman numbers, their GC quad numbers, and you see these nice tight dispersions and then you get in the course and it's just everywhere. So what's the difference there? I would say one of the ones I'll start with is the difference between range mats versus grass. Yep, got to do ground contact. Yeah. So yeah, you're getting you... so much false confidence from range mats. I did as a yeah. kid. I used to think I could hit my iron so far, slamming it off those range mats, and then I get on the course. Ooh, you can. You can, exactly. But then, like, on the course, it's like, I can't hit it that far. 
Yeah. Well, it's, so it's interesting what happens in the impact interval with a range mat. So if you hit on a normal grass mat, your club will hit the ball and then the club will continue to work down through impact. In fact, it will work more down through impact than what it entered. So say your club came in at six degree downward angle attack, it would probably exit impact with a 10 degree, maybe even more angle attack because the deflection of the ball, the ball actually causes the club to even drop down farther or go steeper through impact. Probably a little bit more than people need to know. But what that does is, you know, that creates a certain spin loft so the ball will have a certain speed and spin rate to it. Now, when you go onto a mat, that mat actually supports the sole of the club through impact. So that club is not going to be moving down as much through impact. Probably the biggest where this would be highlighted for people is if they've ever hit on a lie board. You know, if you ever had your clubs checked for you and you've been hit on a lie board, that hard thing, and it makes a big dunk when you hit it. What's happening is that club is always the sole of the club is hitting that lie board and then it's bouncing up through impact or it's working less down. Now, what that does is it produces a, an angle of attack through impact that is much shallower, which reduces spin loft. And so what you end up getting is a ball that launches much higher with less spin and more ball speed. And that ball goes like a rocket. You see this nice high ball flight and it just goes for miles. The mat, a golf mat or most golf mats are going to have a similar effect to it. It's going to be somewhere between real life and the lie board. So you tend to, if you're hitting on launch monitors, you'll tend to see a lower spin rate on range mats. You'll tend to see... Yeah, actually there's a double-edged sword there because you get a lower spin rate from the effect I've just talked about, but you get a higher spin rate from the fact that you're probably getting clean contact, you know, no grass trap between the ball and the face. So they can kind of balance each other out sometimes. But you will get tend to get a higher launch angle and more ball speed on a range mat, especially when you hit it slightly fat. In fact, it gets to the point where you get encouraged for hitting slightly fat on a range mat. You will hit the ball farther, hitting one to two inches behind the ball, than you will hitting the ball cleanly on a range mat. And so unconsciously, as you start to practice and practice, you start to ingrain those faults. As you've got to be really, really careful when practicing on most range mats. Yeah, I think this is one of the harder topics in golf because we want people to test in a controlled environment and there are some things working against you even have range balls that won't go the exact distance as a premium golf ball they're they're built differently so that's why you know as best you can you could take some things on the range with a grain of salt but that's why i always tell people like you need to take time after your rounds to review what happened and absorb feedback and we talk about game tracking systems that's why it's very helpful to have something like ShotScope or Arcos, or there's a million apps now, Swing You, which is a sponsor of this show. That's an awesome app. You could start tracking your distances on the course and kind of like cross-reference this data so that you know that like, all right, I hit 57 irons on the course and this is like where it was going versus 
the range. So you have to do your best to kind of know the difference between the two worlds. And usually they're not like crazy far apart, but there are some differences. And you need to use that information to make the best decisions. And for the most part, to keep things simple, that is going to result everything you just described on the range mats and then what goes on on the course. That's why we end up telling you take more club because you are getting some false confidence from range mats that you're hitting your seven iron 165, 170. When on the course, it's probably closer to 160 or 155 sometimes. So yeah, you have to kind of live in these two worlds and pay attention to what's going on and then just add a little insurance. Yeah, this is why if uh, lots of people are looking for different range mats if you're practicing indoors, I like the fiber-built mats just because yeah, you don't, that's a good you know, one. that club doesn't get the bounce up. It actually will always work down, so you get punished more for the fat shots or Yeah, I think I'm going to be switching. Just... I'm going to be switching to that one soon, I believe. I was messing around with the insert, but I think I'm going to start using that in my house. Yeah, it's much more fun to hit off the other type of mat that bounces up and get another five yards out of it and get your fat shots not punished at all but it's it's just not good for your long term also your, your joints too health. yeah exactly yeah, i'm starting to worry health. about like my elbows and my wrists i'm like in the winter i'm pounding a bunch of balls off the turf like that's why i might be leaning towards the fiber belt hey fiber belt free plug for you guys but it allows you to and it's also a good feedback tool especially with long irons when you hit on that thing and you can't get your long iron low point right and ground contact right you are hitting it off the top of the face and it feels like crap Whereas if yeah. you were hitting off a normal turf mat, you'd probably get away with it. So there's a free plug for the fiber belt system. The other difference between range, I've already alluded to this, is the debris trap between the face and the turf. There is no debris. It's always a clean lie on a mat. So you're going to get much more consistent ball speed, spin rate, launch angles. Whereas when you get on real turf, even if your strike is really, really good, you're still going to get some debris trap between the face and the ball. And that changes the friction which will change the launch, the spin, and the ball speed. Now, I used to believe that anytime you reduce the friction, you're going to get higher launch angle, lower spin rate. I believe that's true for the most part, but I know the ping guys have done some incredible research, and there's lots and lots of nuances in that, within that. So uh, I would just say that you know, water, for example, acts very, very strange depending on whether you're hitting it with lots of spin loft or less spin loft, whether you're hitting it harder, softer. Water can really change the outcome of these things. So it's just to understand that these things they throw a spanner into the works and make things more difficult and that is why you're not going to get that two yard standard deviation or you know tiger who says i hit my six, uh, my eight iron 172 he's not going to when it's in in a real situation you can mitigate the effect of that by striking it better you can also mitigate the effect of that by going and playing on tour level golf courses where everything is pristine and the ball sits up on the grass like it's on a brush but unfortunately that's not an option for many of us so we just have to deal with the fact that when we're playing on dog track courses or just even regular courses we're not going to have the same level of distance control that we would offer range man it's just baked into part of the game and so we yeah. have to have our strategies based around that really and that's yeah by why you pay attention to what's going on in the course because again yeah most fairways and most public courses around the world are probably similar to the primary cut on the pga tour and yeah. their fairways on the pga tour are more like the greens at a muni golf course like they're they're tight you could get clean contact you could spin it a lot more more control so like the more grass wow. 
as you said, I, I shouldn't say that. The more grass, the more things that get caught in between the club. That's why the rough is a penalty. You have less control over what the golf ball is going to do. Yeah, you would have seen that playing Scotland recently. You'd see that the fairways are like most of Americans' greens a lot of the times. It depends on what time of the year. But I remember playing lots of links courses where it was really tightly mown fairways. And you could get good quality strikes on them and, and get consistent outcomes from them the only other thing you're dealing with on a lynx course is a hell of a lot more wind which again is a factor that is going to affect your distance control that is not there when you're in a lab environment and so having to deal with that wind is a huge element you you know even when we play things like gs pro which is our simulator software which you know we have a course in front of us and you could even simulate wind on that but that wind is consistent. Or, yeah, it's you know, not you... changing directions. It's not swirling and changing speeds like real wind yeah, does. And, and even when they put the swirls on there, you know, they're only slight gusts from four to 10 mile an hour. Whereas in real life, you can be standing on the golf course and it can, you know, quickly shoot up 10, 15 mile an hour. And so these are things that, to be honest, you have to, you have, to have a certain level of saying, this is out of my control. I mean, I'd love to be able to control the wind. I'd, uh, I'd, I'm sure if I had that superpower, I'd, I'd have the ability to do a lot more things. But you have to say that when it's super windy, your scores are just going to be higher, especially if it's gusty. You can't, there are certain elements you can't control and you have to accept that and you have to play strategies around that. Yeah, well, as a side note, I would love to do separate episodes on playing in the wind and doing different lies and stuff like that. Like you mentioned Scotland. I love the turf over there. I felt like I could slam my club into it with my irons because it was like firm and sandy and I could really rip into it without feeling like I was going to chunk it. Like I really now more so on my tight wedge shots around the greens, it gave me a little bit more agita, but on my full swing iron play, I just absolutely love that kind of turf. I really enjoyed it. But yeah, wind lies like these are all variables that change outcomes and you need to have we'll we'll try and educate you on those more in separate episodes but yeah all affects distance control though big time Mm -hmm. now speaking of things that you can't control if you got iron byron hopefully everybody knows what it is just a swing robot if you got iron byron to hit shots and a gc quad is measuring the shots what you would see would be outcomes are very, very tight because obviously it's a robot hitting it. Now, if you were to look at the real life dispersion that that robot was hitting, it would actually be much wider. And hopefully at some point we'll get Gene Parente on the show. Yeah, we still need to robot. get, yeah, we still need to get Gene. We've been saying that for two years now. Yeah. <laughs> I remember him saying that, you know, if a robot is hitting 200 yards, the dispersion, there'd be something like a 20 foot standard deviation. At 200 yeah. yards. Marty, so actually, a robot. I remember in our episode with Marty Jertson and Chris Brody from Ping, when we were talking about the, the ball fitting, they, they do all the testing with the Ping robot. And he was saying that too, like even in when they, they have to test golf balls and absolutely they wait for no wind, you know, middle, like 4 a.m. in the morning in the desert in Arizona. And even then, as to your point and what Gene said to you, and he said that to me separately, like there's still a dispersion just because... That's golf. That's physics and all that other stuff. Well, it's because the ball quality. You cannot make a perfectly symmetrical golf ball. As much as people think you can, there's always going to be minor imperfections on the dimple. Chaos theory, you know, one small change early on is going to to, uh, relate to a, a huge change much later down the line. And so, yeah, when you see 
you know, your launch monitor numbers, it might predict that the ball is going to be much tighter or the, the shots patterns are going to be much tighter. And the reason for that is, you know, if all these balls are going to be launching very similar, right? Similar launch angle, ball speed, spin rate. However, even with the same launch, ball speed, spin rate, you can get still further down the line a different outcome, obviously for things like wind, bounce, but just because of the asymmetry of the golf ball as well. And yeah, that was kind of a shocking fact to me. So there's a huge amount of luck when we think about it, you know, that goes into hitting a good shot versus a bad one. You could literally produce the exact same swing and have two very different outcomes just based on what a gust of a small very small slight gust of wind change after you've hit the ball or just the 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 orientation of the golf ball when you hit it yeah so it's a tough game and also like we have to and this is expectation management just when we're talking about distance control knowing that you really you try and keep it within like some type of window but you technically don't have (laughs) distance control like you have distance inputs you're putting in hopefully striking it well, good turf interaction. But yeah, gust of wind could change things. You're in the rough. You don't have as much control over the ball. There's there's so many things in the game that like take you away from full distance control. So again, back to our, our main theme is play it safe and try and take a little more clubbing. Don't get too fancy with it. I guess we've covered a lot here as usual. Any other thoughts that you had beyond that? Well, yeah, just got a list of reasons why people would have poor distance control you just mentioned one always going with the the wrong club you know that's that's the main thing i see it so many times on the golf course that amateurs will be standing there and they're hitting the same club as me and i know i'm two clubs longer than them or the reverse you know i've had some players who are longer than me but they're they're hitting ridiculously fewer clubs and you just think that's that's never going to get there and so you know when just keeping track of your long and short of the green when you miss a green left right long short just put it on a piece of paper something like that note it down in your phone you'll start to see the patterns you'll start to adjust from there you know i found that was always a better way of convincing people to select more club just get them to track stats telling them beating them over the head all the time more club more club more club never seemed to work but when they saw their stats you know i used to i use a lot of drawing dots on a bird's eye image of the hole and so that's really highlighting for people then to see that oh wow look at all these dots short i got to do something different it was similar when i used to do group coaching i used to set people a task i used to say right how far do you hit your seven iron and they'd give me their yardage and i used to write it down and then we'd play a game and the game would be you have to get your shot to land within 10 yards of that and it would be a group scenario so there'd be a lot of pressure on it and people were i I would allow them to change how far they hit their club or how far they said they hit their club. So, you know, after the first five attempts, they don't hit their yardage. And I say to people, do you want to change your stock yardage <laughs> for that club now? And inevitably they say, yeah, I think I hit it a little shorter with a 7-9 than I thought. And then all of a sudden they start scoring points with it. And so, you know, it was a way of almost bullying people <laughs> into the right decisions just by playing this game where, you know, they'd lose points for their team just by having that poor poor club selection you'd have that one person who'd be like no i know i can get it i know i can hit it this yardage but they'd be the ones who'd be letting down the team usually so yeah it's mostly a battle like this part of the game is mostly a a battle of ego for the most part Mm -hmm. is what i've found and and people as you said you need people to prove it to themselves 
for them actually to to change it. And the only way to do that is really to keep track because our memories of what happened on the golf course and the range are so fuzzy. Like we remember those flush shots or like it's just our brains are not good at giving us that info. We need to see it to believe it, as you said, mapping it out. Once you see it, whether it's on like the Arcos or ShotScope dashboard, or if you wrote it on a piece of paper, then you're like, oh, this is what I'm actually doing. Like, why wouldn't I take more club? There are absolutely outliers to that, I'm sure. But for the most part, why is that happening? Because people aren't striking it that well, and they're not interacting with the turf that well. Like those are got to be the two main culprits of that and then a lot of other you know variables that are not as influential probably that that's always been what seemed obvious to me there's also like how you practice you know i'm i'm thinking about why i fall into this trap and if i'm in my simulator and i'm just whacking balls after ball you know they get to a point where i'm hitting harder and harder and harder and i'm doing block practice as well and maybe i'm having a good day where i'm striking it and i can actually some days get my seven iron to go close to 190 you know, I'm in Vegas, so higher elevation. It's also 120 degrees out here, so it's these distances are inflated, definitely. But, you know, when I have to go down to my true 7-iron yardage, which is about 170, when I'm not as fully warmed up, when my, neuro, my, my neuromuscular system is not as engaged and fired from doing all the block practice, you know, these things are going to taper off and drop the distance. Or maybe when the heat isn't 120 outside, maybe when it's just like 80 outside. And so I have to adjust down and I find it very difficult. I think lots of players, you know, they base their their yardages for a club based on their best ones when they're warmed up, when they're firing, beating balls, when they're having that good day, when it's hot outside. All these factors go into the mix and they they have this inflated idea of where they are. So be, be as realistic as you can about things and take all these things into account. What is the temperature? Is it colder than normal? Is it hotter than normal? The wind... Amateurs all often underestimate the wind when it's into and overestimate it when it's downwind. I think there's some mathematical format formulas here, right, where it, it hurts you twice yeah. as much as it ping, helps you, right? If you go to the ping ball fitting site, they have some great articles on that. I use some of the images in my book. Yeah, but a, a into the wind hurts way more than with the wind helps because with the wind, it knocks the ball down. So it actually doesn't go as far as you think you would. So let's say you had a 150-yard shot and you had a 15-mile-per-hour headwind and tailwind. The headwind is going to result in it falling much shorter of your target than the tailwind will make it go long of your target. And as you said, tons of golfers totally, totally underestimate the headwind because, again, if they're not striking it as good, like, I think the wind is the great revealer of ball strikers. Like, that's why I think playing in the wind the last 10 years has made me a better ball striker because you can't fake it as much. You know, to hit into a headwind and get to your target, like, you need to strike it well. You need to really let the golf club do what it's designed to do. And if you don't strike it well, if your path is off and your your strike's off, like, you're going to get punished severely. So, yeah, that, I mean, we talk about wind, elevation change. A lot of simple mistakes get made with club selection. And, and we're going into strategy here and distance control, but th- th- that's essentially what this topic is. It's just making smarter decisions and, and that lowers your scores. It's habits and, and just analytical, being analytical about it. The number one reason, apart from club choice for, for missing greens, is is going to be strike. I don't think, I know we labor, labor it uh, it's a lot, a, yeah, it's, 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 it's the truth. Yeah. It's the truth, though. Ooh. 
but we haven't in this podcast as much. Um, but yeah, toe <laughs> after club selection, how did you strike it? You know, was it toe heel? Was it fat thin? Or oh, in fact, I'd ask that question first. How was your strike? You know, if you hit, if you strike it well and you hit it short, then you know there's maybe a club choice error. Maybe there's judging the conditions, judging the wind, judging the elevation. You know, is that green higher up, lower down, or even just the elevation of the course? You know, sometimes I play at different parts of Vegas, and there's a noticeable difference when I play in Henderson, which is like a thousand feet elevation, and then I go and play in Paiute, which is like. 2000 2500 i know there's a difference in in how far the ball goes out there the bounces on the greens so obviously you know you have to adjust to how hard the greens are that day as well so we talk a lot about carry distance but you do have to take into account how far that ball is rolling after you hit it obviously if you're having well struck shots they're not going to be rolling too far hopefully something that happens for me a lot at the moment so when i'm missing distance wise it's usually not so much a strike error they happen, but it's not so much a strike error. Normally it's something like, for me, it's actually converting sim golf to real golf. So I make a miscalculation. So I play a lot on, on GS Pro, which is usually set at the elevation the course we're playing at that week is. Then I come out and play in Vegas and I'm at 2000 elevation and I'm often, you know, struggling to do that conversion. Obviously I know it's gonna go farther out in Vegas because of the heat. And there's also some wild fluctuations in temperature out here. You know, last time I played, it was 90 degrees, I think. And now we're, we're hitting the high or the mid hundreds. So I'm going to have to go out there and not know how far my yardages are again. So there's always trying to adjust when I go from sim golf to outdoors. And that can be very difficult for me, especially with the wedges for some reason. Or even if you go over to Europe and you, you might be converting from yardages to yards to meters. Or even some, some courses, they have the yardages to the front instead of the middle. And so all these things, they have to go into, into the mix. So you can have miscalculation errors, I call these. So there's judgment errors where you're misjudging the wind or the temperature, but there's also miscalculations as well, where there's more mathematical errors. Most people, hopefully, if they're playing on the same course week in, week out, they're not having to do that too much. But I do see players when it's a, a cold day, for example, they don't club up, they don't you know, understand the effect of having all that rain gear on or that extra gear is having on their swing speed. Not only that, but the effect it's having on the ball temperature, the face temperature, and thus the, the outcome of the shot. All the reason why I tell people, if you're not playing enough, you ain't learning enough. <laughs> like you got to be out there. And these, everything you've described is like experience decisions, right? So for the golfer who plays like 80 times a year is like that's much easier to solve that if they're paying attention properly versus the golfer who only plays 10, 20 times a year. That's why I tell people if you can't play that much, you also have to temper your expectations because that's what you're all describing to me is that's stuff you earn by being on the course, paying attention and adjusting. And that's why, you know, you can practice all you want off the course, but it needs to be balanced somewhat with play and feedback from the course so you create like that what i call like that feedback loop between the course and practice yeah part, that's part of the reason why golf's so awesome like there's just so much learning that goes on on the course yeah i keep track of all these things in a, in a sheet where i see when players miss the green short we can start to ascertain right was it a strike issue was it a club selection issue was it you know more a, a mental fault here, some mental faults could be things like not hitting it hard enough, but that's kind of rare. I think 
It's very rare that a player would hit miss a green short because they slowed their swing down that much. You know, if, if we look at most golfers hitting a hundred swings, their swing speed doesn't vary by that much. Not enough to make the ball go 10 yards short. When it falls severely offline, it's in most cases going to be a strike issue. There are certain situations though, you know, if, if a player is very fearful of a shot, maybe they're trying to take off some yardage because they're really frightened of going over the back for some reason, or they think they've got the wrong club, they're hitting into the wind, they've clubbed up and they just can't commit to it and then they make this half-assed swing. That does happen, so you can put those down as mental faults as well, but uh, it's rare that someone would have a speed change that's significant enough to affect the distance of their iron shots. Yeah, I would I would agree with that. The, your mind can make some crazy things happen, but it's not like you have a golfer whose seven iron swing speed goes from like 65 to 80. Like that's, yeah, that, that no. would be crazy. <laughs> no, that doesn't happen. Yeah, similar with spin loft changes as well. There's a caveat to this. So spin loft is the difference between angle of attack and the loft you provide. So sometimes you get players say, oh, I hit that one really short because I scooped that more than normal. You know, I hit it really high. I, I don't see that happening. When I've watched players on the course, when I've seen the thousands and thousands of shots on the range with launch monitor data, I don't see spin loft change that significantly. Um, not vertical spin loft anyway. Now, what may cause a spin loft change is when a player opens or closes the face accidentally. So we all know those shots where we accidentally close the face more than normal. It feels great. It's a pull shot and it goes a mile. Sometimes even a pull hook and it goes a mile. The double now, the L, reason... the long and left. <laughs> yes, exactly. Long and left. And the reverse is true of that. If you leave the face open, that ball comes out weaker, higher, more spin and shorter. So that's why when you look at bird's eye views of your, your golf shot patterns, they tend to have this diagonal shape to it. Long and left, short and right. And the reason for that is not changes in speed. You're not hitting it harder when you hit it left or softer when you hit it uh, right. What's happening is when the face is open, that also tends to produce more spin loft for the vast majority of players. When we close the face down, we tend to reduce spin loft. So you're turning that club into something different. If you have an eight iron there, eight iron with an open face is now an eight and a half iron. Eight iron with a closed face is now a, a, a seven and a half or even seven iron. Or I mean, God, you can turn it into whatever you want if you close it enough. And so, yeah, these are important things to understand as well. So if I see someone has distance control issues, but it's also tying into that long left, short right, I would actually class that more as a face direction issue more than anything. So we, we'd be working on controlling face direction instead. Now, you'll never get away from having that diagonal pattern. You just want to try and limit it. No, that's a great point. I mean, it's it's... Golf's like a big detective game. You're you're looking at the outcomes of shots and you're trying and that's really what we try and do on the show all the time is giving you the tools to read your ball flight and work backwards and say, okay, here's where I think the majority of the errors are, so I can focus my attention and effort here so you can be more efficient with your improvement process. And yeah, that's 
when it comes to distance control, it's, yeah, it's a strike issue, a ground contact issue. In this case, as you said, a, a face presentation issue. Is it, you know, too open or too closed? Sometimes mental errors, maybe not as much, or you're just not factoring in elevation, wind, that type of stuff. Yeah, there's there's a laundry list to choose from, but most people, if they really think about it, they could start narrowing it down and seeing the big problems. And then some of it's just like, as you said, like the natural variance of golf. This all exists no matter what. It's just we're trying to tighten it more a bit so you hit more greens. That's really the end goal. Pick the right club, strike it well. You'll yeah. go a long way just by doing those two yeah, things. Yeah, I mean, we went through like all this comp. We started off fairly simple, just saying like, yeah, take more club. I think we went through like all these taking yardage off, adding it on. Why is it landing short? And it always gets back to more simple stuff, which is, yeah, take enough club and hit it well, and you're mostly going to be fine. <laughs> a simple game, right? Exactly, yeah. I've got a few little strategies kind of can do these quickly as well for pin on back pin on middle pin on front because i wrote an article a few years ago about it and people seem to like it so what i said for when the when the pin is on the back of the green what i tend to do is pick a club that will go the distance to the back if you flush it unless the only caveat to that is if the back is heavily guarded and the middle you know relatively unguarded but most of the times that's not going to be the case if you use that strategy you know people are always like oh i don't want to hit it too far past well no if you flush it it's going to be on the back of the green you're not going to hit it better than flush <laughs> you know the only time it's going to go over the over the back is if you say misjudge the wind or something like that so you know, we don't hit it better than flush. In fact, if you're flushing it more than 5% of the time, your definition of a flush shot is, is incorrect. So yeah, pick a club that if you hit it really, really well, will get to the back of that green and anything else will land a little bit shorter. It's going to be on the middle green. You're going to be fine. Most players, if they hit an average shot, it's going to be five to 10 yards short, which again is going to put you in that range of tour acceptability. If you're on the middle of the green or pins on the middle of the green, I usually find out the yardage and then I add a 7 to 15 yard buffer depending on the player's level. So again, I, I usually go with a 7 yard buffer if I'm striking it well. Again, hit a club that if you hit it perfectly will go that yardage. So I know if I absolutely flush it, I'm going to be no more than what, 21 feet past. So I'm in that circle of acceptability. And then anything, a groove low, a couple of millimeters off the toe is just going to bring it closer to the flag. That's the definition of making your mistakes work for you. Now, when the pin is on the front, I usually find out the, the yardage to the front of the green. And then I add 10 to 20 yards. You know, I take into account where the pin is as well, but I make sure to add at least 10 to 20 yards. And again, pick a club that if I flush it, will go that yardage. So I just want to make sure that that ball is always going to be clearing that front edge. What you don't want to do is hit an average shot that lands in the bunker. If you hit an average shot and it lands short of the green, that's, that's incorrect yardage. You're much better off being 20 yards past the hole and on the green than in a bunker short and 10 yards away. You know, that short shot out of the bunker, you've got a 50% chance of getting it up and down. I guarantee you most people are going to have greater chance of two-putting it from 20 yards away. Much better than 50% anyway. So those are my little strategy tips for different pin positions. 
Yeah, I think that's fair. I'm probably way more simple than you. I just like shading the two thirds back of the green and thinking like, can I just pick a number for the most part there? But yeah, I mean, front pins are just, tour players are bad at front pins. Scott Fawcett, I think it was Lou Sagner did some analysis with him back in the day where they were looking at tour players to front pins and back pins and they were hitting way more greens to back pins. And the takeaway is that they even get greedy with front pins and short side themselves short of the green because they're chasing after it and they make mistakes. Like they don't hit it perfectly every time. Scott's convinced a ton of tour players to take more club to front pins and and everyone would be like, that's crazy. They would never need to do that. Like they actually do. So if you're 15, 20 handicap and you're chasing a front pin, well, I've got some bad news for you. Yeah, I think we're we're finding a lot of different ways to say the same thing, which I think is that's what that's what coaching is in my opinion. I'm glad before we hit the record button, I went to Adam like, are we gonna do uh distance control and wedges too? And he's like, No. And that proved to be a smart decision. We'll do that in a separate episode, I think, because distance control with your wedges is even more important because that that's a feel part of the game. Now we're talking about full swing scenarios mostly in this in this episode. But when you get inside a hundred yards, now we're talking about how do I hit it 40? How do I hit it 80? How do I hit it 60? And that that is a different topic. So we'll we'll table that for another time. All right, yeah, I think we covered everything we mostly wanted to, right? Yeah, we have. So John, where can people find you? You can find my newly launched Four Foundations of Golf website, which features my book and my new video masterclass. So you can check me out there. That's kind of where I'm sending people at the moment while practical golf is is being kind of reimagined and redeveloped. Uh, So check out my book, check out my video course. You'll see a lot of these concepts in there and much more. Adam, where can everyone find you? If you go to adamyounggolf.com and the strike plan is the one that is really dedicated towards striking the ball better obviously it's in the name uh, and that's gonna have your <laughs> self I, self-explanatory I have so many, honestly i have so many play, players email me saying um you know i'm i suffer with accuracy which plan should i get <laughs> or Strike, uh, yeah. striking is my biggest issue i'm shanking it which plan should i get so i should probably make it more clearer yeah but the strike plan is the one if you have strike issues so fats thins toes and heels though that is going to be the biggest determinant of your distance control if you think you are a better player and you tend to miss more left to right or you tend to have your even your distance dispersion is the you know the long left short right if that's your pattern then the accuracy plan will be the best one for you so yeah those are my little plugs awesome well i appreciate everyone listening thank you for your feedback and support and we will see you next time with a new episode